there, and welcome to another edition of Sip, Sip, Hooray, the podcast about wine and the cool people who make it. Speaking of cool, our guest today is described as liking dirt roads, 12-inch vinyl, point breaks, and hiding in barrel rooms. He also likes great wine, and boy, does he know how to make it. His name is Ian Brand, winemaker and vintner at iBrandon Family, and we are excited to share his story with you today. We are, of course, the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Bapp. And I'm Mary Orlin. And when Ian came on the wine scene here in Monterey County, his mission was to work with unsung vineyards and grape varieties helping to ensure these special places and wines would not remain in the shadow of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Today, Ian is now the maker of three different labels under the I family, I brand and family label, and um, each label has a unique focus, which he'll tell us about. Um, as he likes to say, he's a steward of the region. Um, today, Mary B. and I are here at the I brand and family winery in Salinas with Ian, surrounded by barrels full of great wine. Ian, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're glad you're here, and we've arrived on a very busy day. You guys are doing some bottling today. I, yeah, so we are in our last bout of bottling before the harvest comes, and uh, it, it can be intense, especially in a year like this where there have been numerous snafus with supply chains and uh, trying to get all the different pieces in to get wine in the bottle has been an adventure. So we are running up against the uh, impending impending harvest, and we have to. You got to empty space to fill space. That's true. Yeah. You've got to have some place to put all that juice coming in. It's it's the laws of winery physics. Yeah. So what are you bottling today? Um, we are doing some uh, Pinot Noir for a client, and then we'll be swapping over to our Paisan Cabernet. Uh, and then we'll be packaging up our 2020 Paisan Pop. It sounds busy. Is it, uh, is it looking good? It's yeah, yeah. The, the quality wines are good. I've I've become jaded uh, in that we've been doing pretty good work for almost a, a decade now. So it's 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 more about hitting your hitting your marks. You know, it's it's like being on you know being on the stage and you go mm -hmm. you hit your marks, you sing your songs, and yeah. and, and uh, you get it done. So we're, we're we're mostly hitting our marks. There are a couple of. Um, loose threads that we need to tie up, you know, and we're expecting harvest a little early this year. Um, not on all vineyards, but there are some that are a little light and moving and moving ahead. And so uh, we got some things to button up before the, uh, the grapes start hitting the door. Um, once, once the grapes start coming in, you know, all other work other than topping kind of just doesn't happen. So as you were contemplating making wine here in Monterey County, what influenced you to look at working with some vineyards that weren't as well known and some un unknown grape varieties? I know that you, for example, have been um, working with Alvarino for one of your labels. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what's the inspiration? Well, uh, what drew me to Monterey County originally uh, was being poor. Um, <laughs> 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 that... I um, I knew I wasn't built for working for somebody else, um, and I wanted to forge my own way. And I knew that I could not afford to play the way I would I would want 
um, in a known and an established region. Um, and so I was looking at regions I thought were underappreciated. Um, and Monterey had the dual advantage of having a lot of things under vine, a lot of acres under vine. So there were there was uh, grapes ready to to pick and to work with, and having good ocean access, which was important to me. Um, as far as working with uh, less known varieties or vineyards, I felt that this region um, had some of its answers mixed up. So if, if you look at an Appalachian or any wine, it's, you know, you're solving a problem. You're solving for X. And uh, it's, you know, it's all algebra, really. So the, uh, I, when I looked at what had been done in this region so far, I saw some things that were very interesting. Um, the, the arc of the Shalone winery was a very interesting thing, and, and, um, and that caught on some very, very great, uh, some great stuff. Um, some of the pre-prohibition stuff in San Benito County or in southern Santa Clara Valley was fantastic. But was what was being focused on uh, were wines that I didn't that I didn't see had I didn't see that they had that they fit appropriately in the in, in like the context of international wine, um, and to me that indicated that it was sort of a, a short lived, uh, you know, the, the wine business goes goes through various like pendular trends, and so I didn't see that trend like out I didn't see that business outlasting the trend. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been a little bit wrong on that, um, but I've also been right on several other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so rather than seeking to do something unknown, I was seeking what I thought were maybe better answers for the area. So you've got a pretty good batting average. I'm doing okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does this area do well? You mentioned um, the ocean, proximity mm-hmm. to the ocean being important to you. Is that because you like to surf or for the grapes? Yeah. Uh, if you get away from the ocean in California, it's ungodly hot. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't do that. It, it doesn't work for me. Me neither. Um, so, but that's also true, uh, true for grapes. Um, it changes when you get inland, it changes the wines that, so like every vineyard, every variety sort of has um, its sweet spot, um, its keyhole, right? And depending on the, the uh, quality of the vineyard and the quality of the variety, the, the match, the variety of the vineyard, you have a larger or smaller keyhole to kind of sneak that wine through. Uh, and if you try to make a wine that's outside that kind of group of wines that work there, you end up, you know, it's a Sisyphusian task. You're rolling that rock uphill. Um, and so you're looking to, to you know, we talk about low intervention, you know, quality low intervention wine means that the concept of the wine is correct, right? It's, it's a well-conceived wine, so you're doing very little in the winery um, because the conception's right. And, and you know, that is our, that's what we try to do in the winery. That's what we do in the winery. Right, um, so that the climate, the soil, everything is helping you. You're not trying to fight something that doesn't want to grow here. Right, you're not trying to make, and so like one of the things I saw in Monterey County that I spent years uh, trying to figure out was trying it was there was a lot of Chardonnay. Monterey grows great Chardonnay, but we were trying to make California style Chardonnay, i.e., warm climate Chardonnay, and we made subpar, and still do make subpar California style Chardonnay. And part of the part of the uh, the disconnect that I found was that there was this like um, cultural um, uh, allergy to acid 
and Chardonnay. And so you, you're, you're watching everyone ripen the Chardonnay to 27 bricks and like tremendous tropical flavors because, well, the acids are too high. And um, aided by a couple of like very cold vintages, namely, you know, 2011, I came to realize that, no, the acids weren't too high. We just were thinking about it the wrong way, that we were trying to make Carnero-style Chardonnay when we're a lot more like Chablis. And so um, when we make, you know, it's, it's the same as, as with anything. When you, when you use your voice rather than trying to imitate someone else's voice, you sound your best. And so, you know, all I'm trying to do in looking at all these different, through these different lenses, look at vineyards, is to see the voice of the vineyard and then to um, allow that to sing. And, and if, it's, if the vineyard's got a good voice, the wine will be good. Mm, I love that description. That's perfect. That it makes total sense. And you don't have to be uh, deep into wine knowledge to understand that. I totally get that. You, you see it across... Um, all different types of crafts and, and arts. I mean, uh, when you're looking at someone uh, on, on the music end, like someone like Rick Rubin, right, as a, as a producer, mm-hmm. very naked, very stripped down style, and his records run the gamut of of styles. He doesn't just do one thing, but the the truth that runs through all the records, not all of the many records he produces. No, he did some Andrew Dice Clay in the in the eighties, but it's a different story. Um, <laughs> a little detour. A little detour, yeah. But but there there's a uh, an honesty about them, a, a direct connection from the artist to the listener, and the um, the producer is, is only like a steward. He's only someone who is is is, is shaping that and, and like polishing the edges so that you know what that person or what that vineyard is saying comes through, and that's kind of how we take on our task as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Well. Winemaking is not your first career. You've had um, a bunch of other experiences before coming into wine. I, well, I mean, I don't know if, if winemaking counts as a career. Okay. I don't know if any of those count as a career either, but yeah, I did some other stuff. You had a few other stints. Yeah. Can you um, just talk a little bit about um, some of your experiences? Like, I think you um, were uh, something in Alaska. You were doing something in Alaska. Yeah, so in, um, I, I was wound a little tight as a, uh, as a young man and, um, got out of, you know, I, I found college kind of boring and stifling. And so I got out of there as quick as I could. Um, and just didn't want to do something. I mean, something boring. Uh, like you, you, all we know is we get one life on, you know, on, on this earth. So you might as well like go for it. You shoot your shot player. Um, so I, it was the early days of the internet and I just started finding things on the internet and, the, and I got a job, uh, the, the summer after I graduated as a guide at a bear camp on the Alaskan peninsula. And so I was 21 years old and, uh, what's a bear camp, a camp, not for bears, but what's a bear camp? Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's we take the little bears in and we sing like bear songs. Kumbaya. Yeah, kumbaya yeah. <laughs> Sit around the, for, the, yeah. the fire pit. Yeah, because the, the, the grown up bears have to work during the summer. Um, <laughs> Someone's got to watch the little bears. <laughs> Cubs, I mean. Uh, it, it was a, a tent camp for tourists to view grizzly bears I see. Uh, at, at the, on the Southern border of Lake Clark national park. And so we were on this spit of land and the plane would fly in, it would drop uh, tourists. There were a lot of Japanese tourists that came through and then they would stay with us for two or three nights and we would take them out and show them bears and hope that the camp did get socked in and they could leave in three days. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and yeah, so I, you know, 21 years old, carrying around a shotgun, asking that nice Japanese tourist to please don't take pictures of the bears if we see one on the trail. And of course, he'd come across a bear, he'd be like five feet away, and they're all shooting cameras, <laughs> the bear salivating because it's stressed out and uh, trying to talk everybody down and not uh-huh. have them mauling. And yeah, that was experience. You didn't have any bad bear incidents, did you? No, no. I mean, I, I had some close calls for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, terrible breath on bears. Uh, yeah. Really that really that close? Huh? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, oh. I mean, that I, I um, our neighbor on the spit, uh, the guy who was leased land to the bear camp, was an old uh, trapper named Wayne Byers, um, and he had a Russian bathhouse. That was probably the best way to get clean. So we'd go in there periodically and get it heated up and get cleaned off because it's cold in the water in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one time there was a young bear that found that bathhouse door is a very attractive place to kind of warm himself on a cool evening and uh, and so I got trapped in there for a while and oh my gosh. <laughs> and then kind of came out in my towel and was handed a shotgun and you know, oh my gosh in a towel and stand off with the bear it's great what did that you said you're wound you were tightly wound did that help you chill out or did it make it worse <laughs> um you know, I, I, I don't know. I kind of went from that to next thing, hitchhiked around Alaska for a while and um, ended up in the Peace Corps in Ecuador and just, oh, wow. it just kept mm-hmm. uh, maybe spinning harder. I, I don't know how to, how to describe <laughs> it, but yeah. So, you know, went from there and then ended up uh, living in a grass roofed hut on an erupting volcano in a indigenous village in Ecuador for a couple of years. You like danger. Or adventure? I, you know, I didn't do it on adventure? purpose. No. Adventure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was, wow. I, I wanted to see kind of what the world was about. I mean, in, in middle-class America, you live a very kind of protected and copacetic life. Uh, and you get caught up in a lot of very trivial stuff. So um, I, I wanted to get on feel, you know, what the world was about. And on one side got way out into nature and, 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 uh, macro fauna and, um, 1500 pound grizzly bears and the other side, uh, deep into the third world mm-hmm. and the, um, indigenous, indigenous experience in South America. Um, you know, Ecuador at that time was, uh, had their economy tanked, uh, because their elected president named, uh, El Loco, uh, which if your president's nickname is El Loco, that's generally, but uh, he and his buddies ended up uh, robbing the banks and taking all the money to Miami, um, which is what uh, South American dictators do is they steal from the country and go to Miami, buy penthouses. And then they had to dollarize. And so there were just uh, revolts all over the country and mm-hmm. the indigenous um, groups were kind of at the core of their revolts and they would have paros and they'd like put tires across the... Um, the streets and burn them and get out there with their, uh, <clears throat> with their hose. And if a bus tried to come through, they would attack the bus. And yeah, <laughs> so, wow. it's a trip. So Man. from grizzly bears and volcanoes to wine. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up in Santa Cruz, uh, after working some rivers in Utah for a while. And, um, the gig I had ran out. And I had no money, and I sleep on my buddy's couch, and I had to find a job somewhere, and ended up uh, at Bonnie Doon, um, working in a lab and dragging hoses in the in the cellar. Mm-hmm. Great. And how long are you, were you working with Randall Graham? A uh, um, year and a half at Bonnie Doon, and then four years after that at Big Basin. Okay. Um, so, th- so when I was at Bonnie Doon, uh, it was you know 
uh, you would either describe it as the um, the zenith or the nadir of Bonnie Doon, depending on your perspective. It's when at the height of uh, Big House Red and um, and all the Kata solo stuff. Um, so I didn't work with Randall directly. I actually see Randall a lot more now Do you really? than I did then. <laughs> That's funny how it um, But it was also after Randall got into it, I believe it was car accidents. That's when he had the... Um, Oh, the halo. Thing. The halo. Yeah. Uh, and so he was he was in his own kind of interesting space at that point. Mm-hmm. But Bonnie Doon was interesting because, well, I, mean, I, I don't think that, that Bonnie Doon gets the respect that it deserves. Um, because if you look at current trends, at the current kind of um, direction of the California wine business, that's all stuff Randall was doing uh, two decades, you know, before. You're so right. He was he was preaching it back then, but people really weren't listening much. Well, I mean, I mean he was successful in everything, but it, as you were speaking yeah. earlier, the the big California Chardonnays were still the things that were that everybody was wanting to drink. And I think we've kind of we've we've kind of changed directions now. In, in addition, when when you talk to uh, the the winemakers that are doing it now, you you don't hear a lot of homage paid to the work that Randall did. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, most of our older vineyards that we work out of are vineyards that Randall touched. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. For sure. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about some of those vineyards. And um, you've got a selection of wines from your labels for us to try. So sure. let's get into the first one while you tell us about some of those vineyards. Okay. Um, well, the, the first one is a, is a little, uh, it's a, um, a piquette of Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, that we steep with hibiscus flour, um, which has been an interesting wine, and, and then it's a bottled as a as a petulant natural. So it's a sparkling, like seven and a half percent alcohol. Okay, you're you're kind of blowing my mind. Piquet and Petnat together, and I know for some of our listeners, they're, they're going Piquet. What is what is that? Is sure. it a wine? And then hibiscus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So back it up and tell us what we do. So, uh, this is interesting because we'll move into, into sort of the concept of a wine. Uh, as you listeners may or may not know, there's been a, 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 a the idea of natural wine has really taken over, mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of demonization of sulfur in, in wine um, because you know no one wants carcinogens in their wine, notwithstanding that the biggest carcinogen in wine is the alcohol. Alcohol. Yeah. Uh, so you know science. Oops. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you tend to have a lot of like Russian lit majors that are uh, winemakers. They they're more um, interested in the story than there are like actual facts and stuff like that. So anyhow, and uh, wine for everyone that's that's uh, that's listening, wine has very low um, sulfur. Uh, if you're getting a headache from your wine, it's not the sulfur. It's either the sugar or the histamines. Um, if you have a sulfur allergy, it comes out as hives. Mm. You, you would be itchy. You wouldn't have a headache. Um, drink more water. So the um, making wine sans souf, that is you know, the French term for without sulfur, is an interesting kind of um, hurdle to, to jump over. And there's various ways to do it. Um, you, it, it. When you remove the sulfur from the equation, you kind of have to change how you go about making the wine. Um, oxygen is the enemy of wine. So the more oxygen that, that makes it way into wine, the more quickly the wine's going to degrade. And so you need various agents to counteract that oxygen, whether it's um, what type of clothes you're using, carbon dioxide, antioxidants. Um, so um, 
when we were looking at piquettes, and a piquette is where you take the skins of the wine that you pressed off mm -hmm. and you rehydrate them, let it soak for a couple of days, press them off again. Now, uh, it's a great idea, and it was something that, you know, was done traditionally in vineyards for, like, the winery staff and family to have something to drink, uh, especially in the, in the days where they didn't have clean drinking water. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in, in London in the 1700s, there's a lot mm -hmm. of, like, half percent, one percent beer being drunk because uh, that way you wouldn't get um, terrible microbes. Right. Um, so Paquette was sort of the, the, mm -hmm. the Venice version of that. Uh, it's something that, that came back into vogue. But most piquettes are pretty bad. And the reason they're pretty bad is they lack acid. That you know, All the water and the lack of acid creates this giant donut in the middle of your palate. And so they're just not very good. Mm -hmm. um, so I was sitting in a, um, a little uh, Mexican restaurant on the east side of Salinas thinking about that and talking to, to my buddies with Sami who loves this place that we won't name because it's kind of our little... Uh, <laughs> you don't want to let us in on the secrets. You want to just stay so, your place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've always got to have secrets. Um, but, so we were, we were there, and I was having a Jamaica. And I was yep. um, tasting it. I was like, oh, this is great. And they were talking about the, um, the antioxidant and antimicrobial properties of the hibiscus flower of Jamaica, of why it's healthy. Mm -hmm. And a light bulb went off. It's like this thing that, that has a lot of antioxidants, it's antimicrobial, so you can make a wine sans souf and you'll still have antimicrobial agents in there. It won't go bad. Uh, and additionally, Jamaica's got this great mid palate. And so maybe that would solve like that issue with the piquette and make it a more complete uh, beverage. And so this is the second we've made. And... Um, it really does. It's, it's It operates somewhere between like a uh, rosé and a sour beer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, it's refreshing. It's But tasty. not super sweet. Not, no, not no. sweet at all. Yeah, no. I love yeah. that. It's dry yeah. and... It's, um, it's tart. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah, it's it's, and the color is gorgeous. It's kind of a um, orangey amber. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, um, so it's, it's been really fun to make and um, we're wondering, you know, uh, do we put it in cans? Like it's, it, again, you're kind of working on the edge of, of the public's concept of what a beverage can be. And so there's a lot of, there aren't models of how you do it. Um, it's gotta be fun to create something that hasn't been done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it keeps it interesting. Gotta keep mm -hmm. it fresh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep moving. So. Yeah. Nice. I, this is really terrific. All right, you've just poured us another. What is this one? So this one is um, an Arnace from Vista Verde Vineyard in San Benito County. Arnace. Arnace. So Arnace is a um, a grape from Northern Italy, a white grape, um, and it's uh, often referred to as like white Nebbiolo, mm. unrelated. But it, uh, but it grows in the same region, the, the Piedmont, region, Piedmonte right. region, where Barolo, Barbaresco, that's a Nebbiolo mm -hmm. grape. Absolutely. And so uh, this is from out of San Benito County. And San Benito County is, is really interesting. It's, uh, it, it's maybe a third of the size of Monterey County. Mm -hmm. It's separated from Monterey County in the 1870s. And it's just north of Monterey County. It's uh, north. north and east. North and east. Okay. North and so, east. So, so for folks who don't know where it is. Right. So, so the the Gablon Mountain Range that uh, is home to Shalone and Calera mm -hmm. uh, is the dividing line between Monterey and San Benito County. 
And the San Benito, the San Benito Valley uh, is between the Gabalon and the Diablo Range. And then east of the Diablo Range is when you get in the Central Valley. Okay. Um, and San Benito County is home to the large, to, to the oldest continually producing commercial vineyard in California. Which one is that? It's now Eden Rift and DeRose. Yes. Um, but it was okay. planted in the early 1950s um, and produced a lot of quality grapes um, there in the, in the Santa Clara mm-hmm. Valley around San, San Jose right. pre-prohibition. Right. And then it's, you know, it's part of the story of this region that post-prohibition, the whole wine industry moved north to Napa and Sonoma, mm-hmm. and this area was forgotten, mm-hmm. even though pre-prohibition, the quality of, of wines produced were, were neck and neck with, oh, absolutely. with better-known mm-hmm. regions. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, and I don't yeah. think a lot of people realize that. I, I think don't. people think that it was all born in California's right. wine story started in Napa. And yeah. It was started in Los Angeles. In L.A.? Yeah. It really did. Yeah. Wow. So, so Theo yeah. so Valvache started wine with his brother outside of Los Angeles before he came up here. Yeah, and then it came up to Santa Clara Valley. Mm-hmm. Crazy, and huh? With the Aladdin, um, that label started in the mid to late 1800s. Which I think is really interesting. It gets back to what you were saying earlier, is that when you were looking for a place to do a winery, mm-hmm. this was this area, the Salinas Valley, um, Monterey County, all of this area was... Is, was and in some ways still is um, more open. And mm-hmm. while you said a lot of acreage was planted to grapes, it's a little bit not wild west, but you you have an opportunity here that it's not locked in like Napa and Sonoma, right? Sure. There, there is an openness. And, and, and if you look at Napa historically, Napa has produced uh, several varieties of wine successfully over the years. Um, but at this point, because of the preeminence of Cabernet in Napa, uh, if you're a grower and you have a, a good piece of ground with the pricing for Cabernet, it would just be a, you know malpractice economically to put in something like Charbono. Although mm-hmm. if you go back in the 70s, there were great Napa Charbonos. Really? Yeah, for sure. I didn't know about I, I know that Chenin Blanc was really big. Chenin Blanc, uh, Ribola. Really? Yeah, there's small oh, cool. Ribola in there. Um, Petite Syrah is like the Haynes yeah. Vineyard Petite Syrah. Yeah. So that there are many more things in Napa before, like the mass replanting of the '90s, when mm-hmm. Napa succumbed to phylloxera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in a region like this, you just have a lot more seams and a lot more openness yeah. uh, from growers to so, change. So, Arnais, there was where um, there was Arnais planted here in Monterey County or San Benito. You're San saying, Benito, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, Vista Verde is probably an 850 acre vineyard that largely serves uh, corporate wineries, but they have a couple of pockets of interesting things planted um and san benito is really really interesting to look at because it's kind of a tweener region it's uh it's on the cooler end Mm -hmm. for cabernet Mm -hmm. uh but it's a little too warm for pinot noir and chardonnay and so uh, you're looking at all the grapes between the grenaches the cabernet francs the loire valley grapes and so you know i found it to be very successful with those, with especially the Loire Valley grapes, and to a degree, kind of your lighter, fresher reds. Um, and I was playing there seven, eight years ago, and that coincided uh, with the like the pivot of California to you know that that kind of fresher, lighter red paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched San Diego County come, you know move from like my special little backwater that was great <laughs> to being run over by 
um, all kinds of, you know, winemakers from Berkeley and Northern California and, and really seeking what they have there, which is fantastic for the growers. I really appreciate that. Right, and right. I can but also have some nostalgia like, for... Now you've got to fight for those great contracts? Um, I, I try not to... F- if you're fighting for something, you're always getting poor value. Mm-hmm. So I had the benefit of establishing my relationships and kind of locking up the um, the things that I, that I needed. Mm-hmm. That's good. Um, you were saying earlier that in a lot of your... Um, wines now you're the goal is hitting your marks it's like the stage thing you you know you, you've got it mapped out you've got your your recipes in place and you know what you're doing it doesn't take into consideration what's going to happen weather-wise in any given year or sure. fire-wise or whatever but all things being equal you have you know what you're doing with the different vintages well, uh, mary mentioned her albarino earlier and, and you were asking what the slings you know what this area does especially the slings valley one of the reasons that wine works so well is that Salinas Valley does acid, aromatic, salinity, and minerality extraordinarily well. Like this is this the Salinas Valley with white grapes in that vein, we do that better than anybody else. And so Albarino is a perfect proxy. It's a perfect lens for the Salinas Valley. Um, and we've been making that wine for twelve years now. Um, and so yeah, I mean every year is a different uh, different adjustments. Last year. Uh, well, that would, that would be yeah, last year, 2021, uh, we hit our sugar number and, you know, right where I like to pick it, 21 and change. And our, our acid, our, our TA was like 14, um, which is um, enough to take the enamel off your teeth yeah. and, and, and give you terrible heartburn. It's, it's not a functional number to, to make wine at. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got to adjust your plan on the fly. But you've, you've danced with this partner yeah, so many so times can, that you, you just pivot and, yeah. and, and you kind of know what that partner's going to do. Um, good way to describe it. So the Albarino you've been making under what was your Le Petit Passant label? No, the Albarino's no? always been oh, it's La Marea. Always been La Marea. Okay, and, and so, so let's go through your three labels and sure. describe them. So uh, continuing the, the lens analogy, um, each label is a different idea kind of transposed on the patch of ground at work. Everything I work with is is within 50-ish miles of the winery. Um, so I'm really focusing on, on the area influenced by the Monterey Bay. Okay. And the reason I'm doing that is because different regions require different winemaking techniques. Uh, I have seen plenty of Napa winemakers come down here and apply like Napa protocols and make really bitter, gross wine. And it's because we're not like Napa, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we need gentle extraction uh, because we have that salinity, we, we have that intense sunshine, we have that acidity. And so you need to be careful with your tannin extraction because you combine too, much, too, too many of those things together, you've over, over-seasoned your food. Um, so the, uh, the three labels are uh, Paisan, La Marea, and uh, Ibrand and Family. The Petit Paisan, or the, the Paisan wines, are looking at this region through the lens of kind of a, a village wine. And so it's, it's taking vineyards that may not stand completely on their own, um, but taking the elements of different blocks and, and, and blending them together to make a more complete full wine. And in that way, I can provide prodigious value mm-hmm. to the customer. You know, it's, it's, it's really work, uh, applying my trade and my practice, my knowledge of the region in order to uh, make a composed wine. Uh, and we've been doing many of those wines for over a decade now. So we really know how the pieces right. go together. And you've had a bit of a rebranding on that label. Yeah. Um, we've taken it from the, the Petit Paisan down to, down to Paisan. Um, 
a new label art. A new label art as well. Yeah, I'm really trying to represent the region, move into our next our next stage as as a winery. Um, that I'm I'm particular about what's on what's in the bottle, mm-hmm. um, and and what's on the bottle is just meant to be attractive and draw you in. Um, and then the La Marea label is uh, playing off the Spanish history of the region. Okay. Uh, Monterey was the old uh, Spanish and Mexican capital of California. Um, when I was looking at what was planted here versus the climate, uh, that it was so focused on you know northern French continental grapes, and we were a you know were a marine climate at the thirty seventh parallel. Uh, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, to look at, you know, with the angle of the sunshine here, grapes that were more akin, like on the Iberian Peninsula, where you had a lot, you know, Rias Baixas, Albarino, um, Grenaches, uh, you get a lot of like Grenache and Sardinia, and the Southern Rhone, and, um, and, and, and take those types of grapes and, and, and filter them through, you know, the Monterey sunshine, the Monterey climate. Um, and that's something that's really worked for us. They, they really perform nicely here. Um, we get a very different style of Grenache than you do, say, down in Paso Robles or in the Sierra foothills. Ours tend to be very light and fresh and, and mineral stone inflected, um, much more akin to like what you would see out of the Sierra Negritos, the high elevation vineyards up over Madrid. And so that's been La Marea. And then uh, those are the first two labels that we did. And as I was out... Pimping my wine. Pimping your wine. Pimping my wine. <laughs> uh, nice. In in the markets, I I, I was reacting to um, kind of two uh, two sets of feedback that I was getting. Uh, one was being a me personally as a winemaker, I was being treated as if you know village level wines was all I was capable of, mm. and um, you know, being a Greek like you uh, you know you make me feel small and eh. You know. <laughs> show you. Uh, and then um, the other was the thought that that was, you know, those villas of wines, those kind of mid-tier wines were all this region was capable of. And when I looked at the region, you know, what I saw was Shalom was Clara on the northern end, Montebello, um, three of maybe the 10 most classic vineyards mm-hmm. in, in, Cal- sure, in California, sure. but that linkage was not being um, being seen by sommeliers. They saw Napa, they saw Sonoma, they saw, you know, like, well, that region's just a dark spot. I'm like, you know, that this is a long history of making fantastic wine. So what I wanted to do was to highlight vineyards that provide, like, the linkage between those known sites. Mm -hmm. And so working with some of the other vineyards in Shalom that aren't Shalom, Mm -hmm. and then working, you know, not with Pinot in Shalom because Shalom's warmed since the 60s and 70s, -hmm. both because of global warming and because the transition of the Pacific Decadal Flow. And so the the 50s, 60s, and 70s were some of the coolest, wettest years in California. Um, And California geologic history, not just 150 years that that Mm -hmm. we uh, we have records of it. So uh, switching to, to other varieties, I think, work, that work well in Shalon. And, and we do some Syrah and Morvette out of there. Um, working with vineyards in San Benito County, old line vineyards out there, that, that makes sense. Um, and then through the Santa Cruz Mountains and in Santa Clara Valley, turning into Carmel Valley and, and parts of the Salinas Valley, making the, making the varieties that I think match best with those places that tell the story of those places. Mm-hmm. 
that link it with the history and then provide those linkages between the known places and the unknown places so that you know we're you know through liquid establishing a map of what makes sense i love that a venice a, a, a wine-based map a liquid map liquid map <laughs> um so all the wines we've tasted so far the paquette the arnaise um are the i brand and family label uh the paquette is just kind of its own beast. Okay. Uh, our cellar master, uh, Vince Contreras Iniecas, um, did a torn paper uh, representation of hibiscus. That's uh-huh. incredible. Um, and we just called it Paquette Net. Okay, nice. Okay. I, um, I don't know where it fits. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, so it's kind of its own... Yeah, we make a hundred cases and mm-hmm. we sell mm-hmm. them in the tasting room mm-hmm. in like, New mm-hmm. York City. Okay. And... <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, just it, it's it's a a project. It's a placeholder while I'm figuring it out. Mm-hmm. The uh, I it's one of my favorite wa- um, beverages. I, guess I wouldn't really call it wine to drink out of the winery, but it's not to me. It's not a complete product yet. Mm-hmm. I haven't worked all the way to, to being exactly what it wa- what it wants to be, and so it, it's it, it's working the process. Um, the Ar- the Arnais is just a small uh, block. And so it's a limited, uh, forcibly limited wine mm-hmm. uh, by the size of, of the block that it comes out of. I take the whole block. It's an acre. Um, and what are you pouring now? Uh, this is a Gamay uh, from the Escola Vineyard in the San Jose Highlands. And is this iBrand also? This is iBrand also. And so uh, the Escola Vineyard is farmed by Scott Caraccioli, uh, who is a good friend of mine, wonderful person. And I have, you know, we've talked farming, and he's very interested in, in their vineyard up there. We've talked about it for years and, and years about what, you know, how I think it performs, what, sh- what should be there, and, and how it should be farmed, etc. Um, he's done an amazing job farming it, and one thing that I've, I've been on the San Jose Highlands um, about, so historically, when the Highlands were being planted in the early 70s, UC Davis Extension came out, and they looked at the climate, and they looked at the soils, and they looked at, you know, uh, the terroir, and they said, well, you know, what you should plant here is Riesling and Gamay. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for um, listeners who may not know, Gamay is the grape of Beaujolais. Of Beaujolais, you're right. And now, at, at the time, Gamay had a bad reputation in California because people were planting something that was called Gamay Beaujolais Pinot Noir, which is a uh, a variant of Pinot Noir from like the lowlands of Burgundy. It's a Pinot droids up. It grows upright and creates larger cluster, larger berry Pinot Noir. Doesn't make that great wine. That those recommendations and there used to be some great old Riesling blocks um, in San Jose Highlands. Uh, I think most of them have been ripped out. All of them ripped out now. Everything from the seventies, yeah. But so. I'd, I'd kind of been on Scott being like, you know what really work in your vineyard? Great would be Gamay. And for a couple of years, you know, nothing, nothing. And and then finally he he went and put some in and he said, well, you're going to take some, right? And, well, you know, you got to you gotta put your money where your mouth is. And so <laughs> That's I, right. You I, asked for it. I said, yeah. okay. And so, so now. Careful I, what I, you ask right, for. Right, careful what I asked for. And, and now I'm a Gamay maker. Um, early results are fantastic. Oh, this is fantastic. A lot of people n- may know Beaujolais Nouveau, and Beaujolais Nouveau is nothing like this and nothing like the quality Beaujolais that come out of the Beaujolais region in right. Burgundy. But yeah. this is really beautiful, and um, it has lots of fruit, but the acid 
Yeah. Again, the acid is really great. Yeah, it's, it's a really pretty acid. It's got a lot of whole cluster in it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's a great kind of uh, backbone to it. Just uh, I, I think it's a really impressive wine. And, and, and that's, you know, that's early results. As these vines, you know, get another decade in them, mm-hmm. I think um, what they can be is, yeah. is, is really impressive. And to me, that just says, hey, this belongs here. This is this is the right thing here. Good for Those you Davis push- enologists were right, right? Were. And well, good yeah. for you for pushing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really um, I, I want to see everyone succeed. I want to see good people succeed. I want to see good work succeed. And I believe that if you have the right answers, that success is much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so whether or not it reflects back at me or comes back to me, I I, I really like seeing people come to to good to good answers. That's you know, so good, nice good, to good hear. Sides. Well, you um, are obviously very busy with all these three labels many different varietals, you're no longer running rivers or doing bear camping. What do you do to unwind now? I can see a, uh, an electric guitar or uh, a bass on the wall uh, here. Uh, that's a bass. You yeah. will find all kinds of instruments around. Are you musical? Yeah, yeah so so um, we, we have a, we have a band that play in the winery, practice in the winery, and that's, nice. uh, that's a great release. What's your band called? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's been six years. We never named it. Okay. Uh, what do you guys like to play? Oh, in terms of like music? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Style? Oh, I was, you know, I came up in college radio in, in, the, in the 90s. So there's a lot of influence of that, um, you know, hearkening back to kind of like the, the, the punk and grunge then and mm-hmm. the Uncle Tupelo. Um, I was uh, very um, I, I, I impressed upon. So... I collect a lot of records, and uh, the reason I do is because my next-door neighbor, who's my best friend growing up, started collecting records, and the first record that he got that was sold to him by an old stoner at the local used bookstore was um, an early Funkadelic record called Maggot Brain. Oh, what a good maggot brain. <laughs> and we went through like a major funkadelic oh, wow. phase, you know, to the point where he, he was trying to buy um, merchandise off the backs of these old records and sent one of his mother's checks out to buy some t-shirts and they cashed the check three times. And, they, no. <laughs> and, 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 and I mean, they ain't nothing funkier than that, right? No, <laughs> I, I can't think of anything. Yeah. I hope you still call, I hope you've always called him ever since then, Maggot Brain, because that's such a good nickname. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, his, his nickname, we also went through a wrestling phase, and so his nickname is Nixor Maximo. Oh. Which is his wrestling name, yeah. <laughs> and do you have a wrestling name? Oh, I can't, I can't oh, share can't. it, yeah. Oh. I, mean, I, I, I have several horrible nicknames from for that that, uh, that I have not used since I moved to Monterey County. And every once in a while, someone I know from where it uh, comes back and it's like, "Hey!" And you're like, oh, "No, no, 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 no!" Don't, don't, don't bring, be bringing that here. Yeah, I, probably the uh, the worst one. So when I was growing up, my, because I'm Greek, I was I was um, named Ian. My mom called me Yanaki because uh, my grandpa was Yangi, so I was Yanaki, and none could say that, so I was always called Naki, and I kept trying to. As I got older and more mature, trying to change away from Naki growing up, uh, until I just kind of leaned into it. I went to college, and you know, what's your name? My name is Naki, and everyone would ask me, "Why is your name Naki?" Uh, and so I just kind of got frustrated, and I started telling people that my, that's because I'm the captain of Glottopus. Because, <laughs> and, and that was my name for four years. Oh, that's so, awful. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a terrible name. That's funny. So, um, well, Ian, it has been so much fun getting to know you and um, 
your stories. It's it's just, um, all come together to make you the winemaker you are. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's been a journey, and I, I hope that uh, the next decades are as interesting and exciting. And successful, too, because you've really Absolutely. come into your own. And can you tell our listeners how to find your wines and sure. where to get them? Uh, we have a tasting room in Carmel Valley. Uh, we're at the, the far end of the valley across from the Running Iron. Um, locals don't know where that is. <laughs> the Running Iron, I... Where what is that? Uh, the, the the running iron is 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 one of the the great bars left in Monterey County. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and so you're well positioned. Well <laughs> uh, a, a little bit gamay, a little gin and tonic. We're all good to go. Right. <laughs> all right. Um, and uh, it's uh, 19 East uh, Carmel Valley Road, and so that's the best place to find us. And then we're online at ibrandwinery.com. Fantastic. Well, it has been a, a true pleasure, and it's so fun meeting someone with such an adventurous spirit and doing uh, crafting not only exciting wines, but really elegant wines. I think you're, the stuff you've poured for us today is just beautiful and uh, beautifully expressed. And, and, so. and just a lot of respect for the region you're mm-hmm. working in, for Monterey County, and what it really has to offer. Well, I, I appreciate that. that that's, that's something we, what we try to put forth, and it's, it's lovely that you guys see that in our yeah, work. We do, and we taste it, too. <laughs> well, again, Ian right. Brand, thank you for being here. And uh, sip, sip, hooray. Sip, sip, hooray. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's going to do it for our show today. Thank you for listening to Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show because we sure love bringing it to you. And if you do like it, we hope you share Sip, Sip, Hooray with your friends. So go to whatever platform you listen to our podcast on. Be sure to review us, rate us. It helps other people find their way to Sip, Sip, Hooray. And you can also subscribe to our pod so you don't miss another episode when it drops. If you're looking for past episodes of Sip, Sip, Hooray, you can find them on our website. It's Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast.com. Be sure to follow us also on social media. We are at Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And on Twitter, we are at Sip, Sip, Hooray, the number one. Be sure to DM us with any ideas, questions, or just leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We are, of course, the two Marys, and we do like to eat, drink, and be merry. So, Mary Orlin, cheers to you and sip, sip, hooray. Cheers, Mary Babbitt. Sip, sip, hooray. <laughs>